You're listening to The Cutting Edge, Voices from the AHA, Episode 4. Welcome back to The Cutting Edge. This is Dougal McDonald, the editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. We're headed to Antarctica this episode with Conrad Anker, who returned to Antarctica after about 15 years away for an impressive new route in December. Antarctica is a place where our presenting sponsor, Hilleberg the Tentmaker, has supported hundreds of climbers, skiers, and trekkers over the years with its bomb-proof tents. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run, and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over, especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions, and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Our guest Conrad Anker worked as a guide in Antarctica throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. And in 1996, he did one of the first expeditions to Queen Maud Land, an area of spectacular noon attacks. These are granite spires that shoot out of the surrounding ice cap for hundreds or thousands of feet. In December, Conrad led a North Face team to explore this amazing place. Bad weather at the start of the trip limited their time, but they still made the most of it racing up around 15 summits over two weeks. Conrad and his old friend Jimmy Chin spent most of their time on a single climb, a new route on Ulvatana, the highest and possibly the most beautiful peak in the area. Conrad Anker, welcome to The Cutting Edge. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your history with Antarctica? When was the first time you went? How many times have you been? First time to Antarctica was 1992, and working as a guide uh, between 1992 and 2002, I was at Vincent, uh, the highest point on the continent, and also did a couple trips to the peninsula on a boat, and then uh, one trip to Queen Maud Land, 96, 97. And, and Queen Maud Land, where you went in December and where you went once before, is is much more remote and isolated than the than the Vincent area, right? And it's and it's a spectacular area. Why don't you describe a little bit about how you get to Queen Maud Land and what makes it special? It's not any more remote than uh, the Vincent area. Um, they're both ex- accessed by uh, a flight off of the respective continents. Uh, for Queen Maud Land, you fly from South Africa, Cape Town, and you land at a um, a former research base. It's now a Russian Federation research base, and there's a blue ice runway that's been in position there about a dozen years now. And the flight services come in and mostly offer support for research stations. There's uh, Norwegian, German, Japanese, Indian. um, And then from there, you take another flight to get to Queen Maudland? Yeah. We had about four or five days of bad weather as things settled out, and then we hop in a twin otter, which is, um, in this case, the twin otters are contracted by Ken Boric Air out of Calgary. A lot of good bush pilots there, and the twin otter is the workhorse of the uh, 
the Canadian Arctic and flying all around Baffin and Ellesmere. It's um, approximately 100 miles, so 160 kilometers more or less, from Novo to the Drygalski and the Fenriskipten, the two areas that we went to. And then do you land? Is it a ski plane? Do you just land on the snow? Landing on the snow. Now, your first trip to that area was, what, a little over 20 years ago. Tell us about that trip and who was on it and what you climbed. 21 years ago, we visited uh, Queen Maud Land, and it was uh, an idea that was put forth by Gordon Wiltsey. And the first expeditions to Queen Maud Land were in 93-94. Ivar Eric Tolofsson and his team, uh, they climbed uh, Ulvatana, which is the tallest peak in that uh, in Queen Maud Land. And one of the peaks that was uh, in that area was um, Rakaneven and the that sub-range that's probably 50 kilometers away from the uh, main Ulvatana range. And so Gordon put a proposal together to Nat Geo and then with Nat Geo partnered up with North Face, uh, Alex Lowe and I were the two climbers, uh, Gordon Wiltsey and uh, John Krakauer. Gordon was the photographer, John was the writer for the Nat Geo story, and then Nat Geo did a small uh, TV about it, and that was uh, done by Rick Richway and Mike Graber. So we were a team of six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was neat to look over from where we were to see that peak far away, and uh, we had hopes to go visit it uh, initially when we planned this trip in uh, 2017, that we'd be down there for 34 days, and we'd be able to ski tour around and for an adventure, but... Um, one thing led to another, and we ended up not having so much time down there. And had you always wanted to go back to that that particular area of Antarctica? Yeah, it, uh, I'd, the dream to go back was always there. Uh, sort of turning those dreams into realities takes a bit of uh, luck and, and uh, whatnot. So uh, at uh, the North Face, we have uh, an expedition proposal each, each year, and uh, Cedar had put uh, the trip together. Um, as an idea, and that was cedar, right? Yeah, cobbled together two uh, sort of budgeted over two years because of the price associated with it. And, and what was the team? It was cedar and you and uh, and uh, three or four other climbers. Uh, cedar and Alex were a pair. Um, Savannah Cummings and Anna Pfaff were a pair, and then Jimmy and I. Jimmy Chin and I were a pair. Um, so there were six of us, and then Pablo Durana came along as a, uh, a camera person and all-around great guy to have at camp. So we were a team of seven and basically split into three teams of two. Um, Cedar and Alex crushing the simul-climbing, moderate-type terrain, um, Anna and Savannah doing two routes with uh, Cedar and Alex and then a, a few on their own more classic Alpine stuff. And then Jimmy and I doing the, uh, the steep up with, uh, with a little bit of camping at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. I want to get back to that. Talk to you specifically about that climb, but I wanted to ask you, you had a pretty serious health event uh, a little over two years ago. You had a heart attack at 20,000 feet on a unclimbed mountain in Nepal. And first of all, is heart attack an accurate description of, of what happened? It was a uh, an acute coronary incident, so in layperson's heart attack. So yeah, it was November 2016 on uh, in Nepal, and so I had a um, a plaque rupture in my left anterior descending artery, and 
a uh, blockage for a period of nine hours from on uh, when I had uh, the angioplasty, which the procedure that they put a stent in. And and it, you know you obviously recovered recovered well. You had surgery. Did did you think at the time that you might have to give up climbing after that event? And and what sort of changes have you had to make to your climbing as a result of that event? Well. I'm 55. <laughs> I don't need to go out and chase after the, the climbs that 30-year-olds do, but uh, I enjoy the sport too much to you know, <laughs> always go out there, go do things. So, But it's, I mean, climbed El Cap twice last year, so that was, uh, if there wasn't public knowledge, it would just be some, <laughs> it would just be another you're like, oh, there's Conrad. He's just getting slower and older. <laughs> right. Now, did you and Jimmy always plan to climb together, and, and did you always have Ulvatana in mind? We didn't have Ulvatana in mind. We didn't We didn't really set, okay, this is what we want to climb before we landed coming into the continent. And um, I was on the first flight in with the Twin Otter, so we had two flights um, – uh, because we were a team of seven um so landed and then they flew back to get the rest of the team i skied over walked up to the base it was about a 20 minute ski i was like oh there's the line and then came back and um the next day we started climbing on it right so and what what aspect was this the northwest face that then goes to south ridge so northwest it, face um, to the south ridge yeah and so it hadn't uh, – the South Ridge had been climbed, um, part of it by the Belgians, part of it by the Norwegians, and eventually summited by uh, Andy Kirkpatrick, who was uh, bringing a team there for uh, base jumping. The northwest face, that wall, we were the first ones to climb that and get to where we joined the ridge. Mm-hmm. It's just an incredible peak. It's it, To me, it looks like – from the air, at least, it looks like a – like a warplane or a rocket or something just erupting from the ice. It's just an incredible mountain. How how high? How much vertical is there uh, above the ice? The route that we had was uh, eight hundred meters. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the south face, which is the equivalent to the north face in the northern hemisphere, uh, is probably thirteen hundred meters. It's even bigger. Um, and then there's the uh, sort of the north face which is the sunny side and that's um there's probably a thousand meters and the um the south face hasn't been climbed the north face has been climbed um so what jimmy and i did was the uh, seventh ascent of the peak mm-hmm. and w- how much new ground did you guys cover on the northwest face well probably um oh we were we fixed six pitches and it was another three pitches to get to the 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 saddle yeah it was uh for jimmy and i it was pretty tricky because once you you start pitching things out it was gently overhanging it was completely wide (laughs) the crack was so it's a lot of shuffling big cams and aid climbing and kind of getting in there but once you um once you start hauling then you have to pitch it out you're not simul climbing once you take a, a a sleeping bag, you got to take a tent. A tent means you got to take a stove, and <laughs> and so it just sort of it, it just goes a little bit uh, a little bit heavier. But um, yeah, it's Olvatana itself still hasn't um, 
been climbed alpine style, which would be kind of it was something to to look forward to for future trips. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you said you you fixed about six pitches? Uh, was this all aid climbing, or were you doing some free climbing, or what? What was the style? There'd be a little bit of free climbing in there, but what Jimmy and I were on was um, it was primarily aid climbing because it was um, it's just so damn cold. Yeah, if it was sunny. <laughs> in Yosemite Valley and the rock and up, it'd be yeah, it'd be free climbable. But um, how, how cold was it, sir, during the day? You know, when you're when you're actually climbing, what were the average temperatures like? We would have temps in the range of uh, oh, probably from minus five Celsius to minus twenty. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Three or four layers of long underwear, down jackets, climbing with gloves at all times. It was cold down there. We had to have double boots and um, multiple layers and then putting mittens on in between pitches, always staying ahead of uh, the temperature and keeping your hands warm. Are you, are you, are you climbing uh, barehanded when you're actually climbing or are you wearing gloves? or Wearing gloves. Yeah. So uh, there was uh, – even I mean Alex did most of his stuff in gloves and just so he was um and yeah just uh leading with gloves on and uh, so yeah I would have uh fleece gloves and just would um wear through them and <laughs> wear through them and wear through them so um and then warmer mid temp gloves and then uh, a uh a, a pretty sturdy glove for belaying and kind of stamping around, staying warm. Yeah. So my, let's see, minus five Celsius, minus twenty Celsius. Yeah, it's low twenties, down below below zero Fahrenheit. And I was thinking, you and I are about the same age in mid fifties, and my whole body, but especially my hands, have become much more cold sensitive in recent years. And I was wondering if you found that too, if the cold is more difficult for you to deal with than when you were younger. I I don't know. I, it doesn't seem that way. I've always had good distal circulation and was had warm hands and be the guy that would be running the stove and fiddling with things and on expeditions. So that was always. Um, but it's um, yeah. I I didn't get cold hands down there. I didn't encounter. Didn't get frostbite or anything. No one had any frost injuries. But. Um, did, did you get a little jealous of the others, uh, you know, or Alex and Cedar scampering up these routes in a single day when you and Jimmy are sort of plodding along? That's not my nature to be jealous or, oh, I could be doing that. Or, I mean, yeah, am I going to be jealous of Alex Honnold? He's the best free soloist in the world. <laughs> how, much, so uh, happy <laughs> how, how much time all in all did you spend on, on the route on Olfatana? We uh, fixed our uh, – um, the six pitches on it. And so that was, we were about a pitch a day. Some days we'd do two pitches and then we'd kind of straighten the rope out and fix our ropes on it. Uh, so it was super fast climbing. We had a storm day here and there. And then um, we went back up on it and um, then spent three nights, um, four days to finish it up and then come back down. So um, you spent three nights up on the route once you, once you committed? Yeah. How, how were you in a? Were you able to put a tent up, or were you just bivying, or how how did that work? 
We had a tent, so there was uh, no need for just There was uh, tent platforms and nice enough that you could take your harness off and walk around. Oh, um, okay. So it was that was uh, kind of neat along those lines and to be able to, to camp up there. But we'd haul our gear and then have to um, uh, move it up. And so in the course of it, we um, we didn't place any pitons and we didn't place any bolts, which um, the entirety of our team not doing that was um, it was kind of nice that. With all those summits, you said that Alex and Cedar climbed 13 summits, is that right? Yeah, 13 or 14. 13 or 14, and yeah, so all, all together, something, your group did something like 15 summits without without any bolts or pitons in the entire time? That's correct. Wow, that's impressive. But we burned through a lot of rack. Yeah. <laughs> Jim and I, getting off of it, it was, I mean, there was places where you could sling a hole and you could do things uh, with that, but um, it's still... Um, Leaving camps behind is uh, what we opted to do. Yeah. Did you re- did you uh, come down the same route that you ascended? We came down the same route we ascended, and then had to go back up to those first. Uh, uh, we cleaned the last two pitches. We summited, came back down, cleaned the last two pitches that we'd had fixed, and then rappelled down and came up the next day and cleaned the rope the ropes, and then the following day um, flew out. You know, it must have been interesting for you to be part of this big group with so many different ages and styles of climbers. I mean, I read that Alex Honnold described you as the dad on the trip, getting up early and making coffee for everyone. Is that kind of a role that you consciously adopt now on the on the North Face team? Are you the dad figure? <laughs> I don't know if I'm the dad figure, but I've been around a while and uh, in capacity as team captain. But um, it's interesting, having been on other trips the the parents are the ones that get up if you have kids then you're the ones that making tea in the morning and making sure everyone's fed kind of bringing that connection together so in that sense but i'm an early riser so i would get up early and get the stove going and you uh do you feel like you have a role now as a mentor that's become more important to you it's it's uh it's, it's meaningful. I'm not going to teach anything to Alex on how to climb, but um, in terms of being on expedition and setting up a camp and staying fed, how you communicate with the air service people, the the pre-trip logistics, the uh, out of that stuff I did out of here in in Montana, and that's uh, I like doing that. So that's uh, it's kind of a, a neat way and. But yeah, it's good to see Alex grow and progress as a uh, climber. And and for Savannah, she's 24, 25, something like that. And so her drive is to be a creative, someone that interprets uh, nature in in the way that um, um, you don't have to necessarily be climbing 514 or doing all these routes in the outdoors to be good at it. You can be someone that interprets it through a lens or through a, a paintbrush or through poetry or something like that. So seeing her come in there and Jimmy helping her out with uh, the photography type work, Jimmy and Cedar working together in the filming capacity, along with Pablo getting uh, some images and, that we're able to work with. So yeah, it was a it was a great team. It was nice uh, um, to include women on the trip to. 
empower women to get outdoors and to to seek these adventures and mm-hmm. rather than it be a bunch of guys. And how has the experience of uh, climbing in Guidemont Land changed between 1996 and today? Or did it look and feel pretty much the same as when you were there before? From a climate standpoint, there's no way for uh, for us to tell or civilly myself to tell um, because you don't have – you were there for three weeks 21 years ago. You're there two weeks 21 years forward. And can you tell anything? You really can't. On a climbing level, the type of climbing that Cedar and Alex do, simo soloing, using micro tractions at fixed gear, um, kind of that style of climbing is is been perfected and taken to a higher standard in the last decade or so. And it's really when climbing El Cap speed wise, those are some of the, the methods that they use. When you're when you're looking around as a climber and at your camp and looking at the walls, it, does it still seem pretty pristine, or do you see the impacts of climbers uh, who've been there over the last twenty years? We didn't. Yeah, Queen Maudland, because of the price and the cost associated to get there, it's it's um, it's extremely limited in in people that will be able to to get there. But um, I mean, our greater impact as as uh, climbers was our carbon footprint. So. Um, I, I want to ask you about that. I mean, you, I know you have a great deal of concern about the environment, and, including climate change. And you know, you've been an activist, activist both locally and nationally on environmental issues. And and yet, your work as a climber and a, and a public figure, you know, you're you're required to travel extensively on airplanes, like like this trip to Antarctica. And I mean, do you struggle with that contradiction? And and how do you, how do you sort of work to resolve it? Yeah, it's a it's the. Uh... <laughs> The challenge we face. So, we um, purchased carbon offset for our trip um, down to however many nights we spent in a hotel and how many uh, car rides we had in Cape Town. A lot of those things that went into the carbon offset on this trip. So, mm-hmm. no, it's not solving the problem, but um, we're working towards that. So, as someone that cares about the climate and what's going on. And when I'm public about it, it's the first dart that gets thrown at me. It's like, well, Conrad, you fly around in a jet, you go to the Himalayas, this and that. I mean, yes, I, I realize that I have a high carbon footprint. And particularly the citizens of the United States, we all have a per capita. Uh, we use a lot of energy and we're creating a lot of uh, greenhouse gases. We're 4% of the world's population, and we use about 25% of the world's uh, energy. Where do we work with this? Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, I try to um, minimize um, expeditions. Um, and now it's to do one year would be great. And um, whereas in when I was younger, I would go – two times a year to the Himalayas or to Antarctica, Patagonia. I mean, it's just quite a bit of travel involved with it. And um, Do you make that decision in part consciously because of trying to minimize your air travel? I'm trying to. I'm psyched that I'm, I'm bumping down in airline status. <laughs> I don't need it. <laughs> you mentioned you'd be happy to do one expedition a year, and you, and you just got back from one, but do you have something else planned? Do you have something coming up? Or- I 
don't have <laughs> nothing in the works. So there's um, yeah, this one I had we had planned before uh, I had that coronary setback, so it was nice to follow through on it. But um, yeah, they're um, climbing granite peaks in the Himalayas. <laughs> I like doing that stuff, and maybe do a couple more. But who knows? I'm happy and content to climb here in the United States and rock climb along those lines. Well, Conrad, it's been great to chat with you. Thanks for coming on The Cutting Edge. Yeah, best of luck, Dougal, to uh, The Cutting Edge and the uh, American Plant Club and getting people involved and engaged outdoors and the, um, the challenges that we all face. Cedar Wright is making a film about this expedition and about his climbs in Antarctica with Alex Honnold, which will be out later this year. That should be a treat. Thanks to Conrad for spending this time with us, and thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making the cutting edge possible. This podcast is produced by the American Alpine Club. AAC members get a free copy of the 400-page American Alpine Journal each August along with rescue coverage, great gear discounts, and many other benefits. If you're not an AAC member, consider joining and supporting our work. Go to AmericanAlpineClub.org. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AAJ, wishing you happy climbing.